This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Cheddenden. My guest today is coach, attorney, author, and end-of-life doula, Susan Koenig. In the show, Koenig talks about what she has learned from a life as one of eight children raised on the edges of poverty, experiencing the deaths of several people close to her, and the joy that can be found by being attentive to life. Koenig also shares how we might frame our aspirations for the year ahead in this season of reflection and resolutions. I always go to my life's intentions, which are a, a list of who I think I'm called to be in this lifetime. Uh, you know, to be an effective mentor, to be a masterful coach, to be a joyful dancer. So I have a list of those um, which come out of my paying attention to what enlivens me, brings me joy or meaning. And then I ask myself, in the season I'm in, which are the ones that are important to focus on now? The fifth of eight children and raised a Catholic, Susan Koenig grew up in Little Italy in Omaha. She is an executive coach, attorney, author, and certified end-of-life doula. As an attorney, Koenig is the founder of the divorce law firm, Koenig Dunn. Her book, Divorce in Nebraska, has been replicated in over 30 states. Koenig's brother, Tim, died of AIDS in 1994. Her late husband, John, received a cancer diagnosis with a prognosis of death in two and a half years. With no options for surgery, radiation or chemotherapy, they embarked on a holistic healing journey of over a decade. Koenig shared her reflections in her TEDx Omaha talk titled the energy of eulogy. Susan has three grown children and makes a home in Little Bohemia with her partner Kevin and their two cats. Her word of the year for 2023 is true. Susan Koenig, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. So honored to be here. I have a feeling that today's show is going to be about endings and beginnings and what may lie in between. We're recording this shortly before Christmas, but the intention is to air this show at the new year. And in your TEDx Omaha talk, you quoted Stephen Covey, who said, begin with the end in mind. I know that you have said that an aim of yours in life is to be a centenarian. It's true. Please tell us more about that motivation. Mm. Well, Life is so wonderful. I'd love to have as much of it as I'm able to. And it's such a gift to have a body that, to have a body and to have one that's healthy and strong. I like to live some of the things that I try to teach people in coaching. And one of those is how to take care of ourselves. So I would love to be a model of how we can live a long life well. So I'm very inspired by people who have lived to be 100 and beyond. It's actually one of my hobbies to read about centenarians. You mentioned uh, being embodied. And one of the tidbits you shared with me offline is not just that you like dance, but you describe yourself as a joyful dancer. 
I wonder what does being a joyful dancer mean? Well, the, the first is the distinction between uh, joyful and being skilled or talented. <laughs> so um, it means that I feel very alive when I'm dancing. I dance for exercise. Uh, and I think anything that makes you feel enlivened and uh, excited about simply being on this earth is something to pay attention to. Um, that's often informative about where we want to be focusing our lives. Mm -hmm. So um, to be a joyful dancer means uh, uh, to be uh, unembarrassed uh, by the fact that something is just making you happy and you've got to do it. I feel like that's some of the wisdom that comes as we journey through life, you know, this project of being alive, being human. So I started with asking you about, as it were, an end-of-life goal towards achieving the age of 100 and beyond. Now we want to jump back to the beginning. Would you share a little bit about your childhood? What stands out to you? Well, one of the blessings of growing up in a household with many children and not many dollars um, with an alcoholic parent is that you experience a few challenges or maybe even hardships as a young person so that when adulthood arrives, um, you have a tremendous gratitude for everything that follows. I can remember the first time as a newlywed, we had enough money in the checking account to purchase something that wasn't an essential. And I felt so rich. So um, growing up, you know, I went to uh, Catholic grade school, lived in a working class neighborhood. Um, my father was a construction worker when he was working. Um, my mother had an eighth grade education. Uh, so it was a very uh, simple life in and out of the edge of poverty. It made me hardy, I think. You know, I learned a lot about being independent and uh, developed some grit. And those capacities have uh, been a gift to me, which I, I didn't realize at the time, of course, but um, they sure are. It can be hard to know, I think, as a child, especially when you're one of eight, what living on the edge of poverty means, because unless you can contrast that with either your later life or other people around you at the time, it sometimes is hard to know what exactly that means. I'm wondering, as you reflect back on your childhood, how have you perhaps reframed some of the memories of, um, you know, joy and hardship that you encountered then, but you can see in a different light now? Mm. Well, one of the things I can see uh, is that feeling alone or that you um, didn't have support because the family's resources were stretched so thin can, on the one hand, uh, give you the belief that you always have to be on your own and alone and there's no one to help you because that was your experience because of just the realities of life. As an adult, I can look back on that and see, oh, I'm not a little child with no one who can help me. And uh, I've had a lot of learning as an adult about asking for support and asking for help because the truth was I really did have a lot of support on the, along the way that came from teachers, for example. Uh, they, were, they were there and helped me in many ways that my family wasn't able to. So I learned a lot about, uh, I, I was a late learner in reflecting back on my childhood and all that it gave me. You've remarked, I think, about your 
mum appreciating the Sunday Mass as being a highlight of her week. And I'm curious how much faith showed up as part of your childhood family mm. context. Yes, my, my mother was a very devout Catholic, and we lived about a mile from St. Francis Cabrini Church. My mother never learned to drive, yet she walked to church as long as she was able to walk and never missed church her whole life. So for me growing up Catholic, I had a, a model of um, dedication to one's faith. I uh, abandoned uh, Catholicism, one might say, uh, pretty early in my, uh, in my life. But the principles that I learned about um, caring for others, caring for those who are suffering or in need, and just uh, an appreciation of the spiritual life and ritual, I will also say all of that came from my Catholic childhood. As I mentioned earlier, we're recording this heading towards Christmas, and the goal is to air this conversation around New Year, which I think is traditionally for many people a moment of reflection about the year that's just passed, perhaps more in their life, and what their aspirations and intentions are for the year ahead. Now, professionally, you are an executive coach, and so part of your professional role is to support people in identifying goals and establishing behaviors that can help them get to those goals. So I'm going to ask you a little bit to step outside of that professional role and maybe just reflect on the nature of resolution making at this time of year. What are your thoughts about New Year's resolutions as, a, as, a, as it were, a, a cultural, a social phenomenon? Uh, how do we go about it? Yeah, I think resolutions are a source of great frustration for many people because there's not discernment between intentions and goals. And so what's great about resolutions is we take some time to think about what's important to us. And I think that's something worth doing every day of our lives. So that's beautiful. Where people get frustrated is um, they often make a resolution that is either uh, vague, as in not a goal, that's specific, measurable, attainable, time-based, right? So there are goals that can be very helpful. That's a distinction. And uh, another is that people uh, start too big. You know, they think, okay, I am giving up X, Y, and Z, or I am, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. You know, that's the, that's the big one, right? Where we, I've got my new gym membership. I'm going to go three times a week. Now they haven't gone for three years or three months, uh, but the minute they have a week, uh, say about February, where they only go once, they begin feeling like a failure. They don't go back the next week. So um, I love the idea of remembering what's important to you and having an intention around that, but then starting where you are and starting small so that you can build on that success rather than starting with some giant plan and then feeling like a failure, you know, two or six weeks in. So um, the idea behind resolutions is good. I think they haven't been used in a way that help people really feel successful. Why do you think it is, as it were, traditional to do that work at this time of year, as opposed to perhaps being deliberate about it at other times, either during the year or at other moments in our lives? 
I'm a big believer in marking seasons of our lives. And there are lots of different ways to do that. I think in our culture, the start of a new year is the start of a new season, new tax season, <laughs> new business year, um, and a new calendar year. So it marks for us a beginning. I also think that seasons should be honored in other ways. And even when we're thinking about our New Year's resolutions or goals or intentions, it's useful to ask first, what season of my life am I in? You know, I had some friends who lost their mother this year and other close friends. If I'm in a season of grief, how I'm going to start the new year is going to look different than maybe someone who just started a new job or just had a new baby. So if I'm a caregiver or if I'm recovering from an injury, a new season is going to look different for me. So honor the season that you're in, I would say. But I think that that's why this time of year is such a, um, a useful time for people to reflect back on the past year and look forward to the year ahead. So you've shared that your word for the year ahead for 2023 is true. Could you just talk a little bit more about what is your process of reflection and consideration uh, to arrive at a single guiding word? Mm. Well, for me, it's a part of um, one of my regular practices, which is meditation. Uh, I just want to say a word about meditation. That can come in a lot of different forms. It can be a walking meditation. It can be a cooking meditation. Uh, it can be a, a quiet sitting meditation or a guided meditation using an app. So lots of different ways. But for me, uh, it came in, uh, in quiet meditation. And I was... Um, thinking about uh, what's going to be important to me in the year ahead and uh, uh, any big goals or projects that I had and just the season of my life that I was in. It, it actually, the word came to me in a meditation to be truthful since I'm being true. <laughs> what does that word mean to you when you think about how it will not only guide you, but perhaps hold you accountable for the year ahead. Yeah. For me, it means being true to myself, which means ma matching my uh, actions with my intentions. It also means being true to the people in my life, being true and truthful, which can call for vulnerability and which hopefully will bring greater connection and deeper relationships. So, uh, that's my hope. I'm, I'm also going to be doing some writing. Uh, well, I, I do a lot of writing, but in my writing, I want to be as honest as I can. And so uh, being true there is also important to me, true to myself and truthful. Outside of New Year and these intention-based practices, how do you go about thinking about your own goal setting? Mm. I always go to my life's intentions, which I, uh, are a, a list of who I think I'm called to be in this lifetime, uh, you know, to be an effective mentor, to be a masterful coach, to be a joyful dancer. So I have a list of those, um, which come out of my paying attention to what enlivens me and brings me joy or meaning. And then I ask myself, in the season I'm in, which are the ones that are important to focus on now, uh, because in my past life, 
I would have had a goal. I would have had goals for every intention. I had a pretty driven life uh, in years gone by. And one of the things that life has taught me is the importance of balance. So now uh, my life intentions around my relationships might allow for more enjoyment, more restoration, more relaxation, not simply, you know, writing the next book or, you know, reaching an, a financial goal. I don't want to strain this metaphor too far, but playing with this idea of seasons of your life. Mm-hmm. You talked about earlier in life being quite driven. And so I want to perhaps talk about the spring, as it were, of your life. As you're heading to college, leaving college, becoming an attorney, what was happening? I don't think I was very guided in my early career path. So I looked more at what I had, I, what I was, thought I was good at, speaking, writing, uh, and that led to me um, deciding there wasn't much else I could do with my sociology degree if, unless I was going to teach. And for some silly reason, I thought I didn't want to teach. Um, turns out I started teaching when I was in law school and have been teaching ever since, but what do you know when you're 21, right? So um, I found myself in, in, in law, and while there, um, discovered really that the part that I loved most was the relationship with people and finding out what was important to them and helping them to uh, get to the next stage of their life and get through a difficult time. So um, I think I got more out of that. I know I got more out of that part of, more meaning out of that aspect of practicing law than the writing and speaking and the technical skills that I may have had. Divorce is a, can be a traumatic experience for many people that are going through that. And so I want to invite you perhaps to dig a little deeper into why that specialty spoke to you as an attorney. Yeah. I'll give the context of the beginning of my career, which was that in the 1980s, um, if you were a, a young solo practitioner, woman, lawyer uh, in Omaha, the kinds of work that would come to you would be in the family law arena. A lot of court appointments in juvenile court representing uh, abused and neglected children, for example. So um, that work came to me with some amount of ease, and I found it deeply meaningful. So uh, over time, I began to let go of the other areas of practice of law that I could have done because the meaning was there. I could really see that my advocacy created the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And over time, as the law firm grew, um, the lawyers who joined the firm, my law partner, Angela Dunn, who grew the firm, all have come to this practice area because they feel that same commitment to helping people get through a difficult time and get through it better than they were they were when they entered the process, so they they'd feel more empowered, uh, more supported, more secure about their future. So it's felt quite natural. How has that changed over time? How has your attitude to what divorce law can be, how you go about the practice of divorce law, changed since that beginning? What really has changed for me is understanding that divorce is not simply a legal process. 
but a transformational personal experience. And the relationship between the person going through the divorce and the legal team that's supporting them will make a difference in how they move through that experience, how traumatic it was, how healing it might be, what they might learn about themselves. So it's really bigger than a legal process. And there's a lot about it that we can't control, the judge, the facts, the law, but we can impact and influence the experience that a human has going through one of the most difficult things that they will ever go through in their life, their fear of the loss of their children or their relationships with their children, the fear of their finan- for their financial future, where they're going to live. There's so much at stake. And when you can impact a person's life in all of these areas by your contribution, it's a very meaningful life. And you wrote a book that speaks to the process but also I think maybe the possibilities of going through this experience. Could you share a little bit more about why you wrote it? Yes, so um, the book was written to help people who are going through the process be better educated, have lower legal fees, uh, and less fear around the process. Um, My law partner, Angela Dunn, co-author, wrote the, wrote the second edition, and I co-authored the second edition. But we really thought that people should not have to pay a lawyer to get access to information that should be readily available. I remember a little bit of criticism from some other attorneys uh, in the profession saying, why are you giving all this information away <laughs> when you could be charging by the hour for it? Well, uh, for all those reasons. So at some point, you identified that coaching was an endeavor that you wanted to embrace as well. So what was the journey into coaching? I like to say that coaching found me. When I read a description of what coaching was, you know, that it helped you helped people uh, find what was important to them in their lives and help them reach their goals. I got so excited. I didn't know this was a thing. I got so excited. I nudged my husband who was sitting next to me and said, this could be me. This could be my next career. And he looked at me very surprised because I'd never wanted to do anything uh, else other than law. I'd been 20 years practicing law, but I decided to get trained. I thought, well, this will be useful to me in my, in running the law firm. When you are in training, to become a coach. If you're in an accredited program, you begin coaching people, right? To get the experience. Once I started coaching people, I loved it so much. I thought, "Uh Oh, this is all I want to do. I want to do this. So um, I went back to uh, my firm, which now had a number of employees and said, so I want to do this new thing, but I can't do it unless I have your support. Cause obviously I'd learned something about support by then. And um, they were behind me. So it took me about five years to make the transition from lawyering to coaching. So you've been coaching for quite a while. In your observations, why do people typically need coaching? Coaching gives us something that our best friends can't and that a therapist doesn't. So a therapist will help us uh, look at our past, help us heal, and uh, give us some skills and tools, so some similarities. 
our friends will cheer us on, listen to us, some similarities. What is different about coaching is that it is very forward-looking. Uh, it's, of course, confidential. It is action-oriented. And uh, there's no diagnosis. There's no analysis. It's about the life you want to create. So um, there's a distinction there. So people might come because they're um, launching a new career. They are looking to change their career. They uh, have a creative project that they're stuck on. They're struggling with their finances. Uh, or they just are feeling uninspired about life. Could be that they have an overwhelmed life. I, I work with a lot of lawyers who have a lot on their plate. Uh, sometimes it gets to be too much, and they're looking at, uh, for a path forward. You mentioned lawyers. Do you, do you find that you focus in particular on a, I'm not sure how to ask this, do you find that you're focusing on a particular kind of client or a particular kind of need? What has changed for me over time is that um, I want to work more with nonprofit leaders because uh, I've done a lot of leadership coaching and I have felt that if I can coach a leader, then I can influence the entire organization because um, they are the culture keepers very often and they can infuse their organization uh, with these principles if they've got them in their bones. So uh, I love coaching nonprofit leaders to try to uh, make more good in, in my community or across the country. Yeah. Do your clients have some common misconceptions about what it is that you can do for them as compared to what they need to be doing for themselves? We make it clear as coaches that the real um, benefit of coaching will come from how they put into practice the insights that they will gain in the coaching session. So at every coaching, uh, at the close of every coaching, there will be some, we might say, homework that um, the client will do between that session and the next so that they are practicing the skills. They are experiencing um, not just being told or hearing uh, what can make a difference in their lives. They're choosing what to do, uh, but they're also being held accountable when they come back um, to, you know, did you do what you said you were going to do? So that's something your best friend's probably not going to do if you say, I'm going to the gym on Tuesday. <laughs> Again, not to torture the metaphor, but this idea of seasons. We also arrive at this place where you are now a certified end-of-life doula. What does an end-of-life doula mean and what does that role entail? An end-of-life doula is someone who supports a person who is in the dying experience uh, and the people around them. So there are a host of ways that the support may come. A lot of it involves listening and just simply being a companion on the journey. There can also be practical support around the planning and preparing uh, and also looking at what's important to you. Uh, I just got um, a text this morning on my way here from someone I've been doing some end-of-life work with for some time uh, and he wanted to show me his greatest uh, achievement of last month. Um, in between his, his chemo uh, and immunotherapy. And he had gotten a tattoo that represented uh, faith 
and family and his love of the ocean. And uh, it just spoke to me of how a coach can help people really connect with what's most important to them at this season of their life. And um, so it's that kind of thing. You're quite public about some of the traumatic uh, losses you've experienced in your own life, one of whom was the loss of your brother, Tim, um, in 1994. I think he was age 35. And he passed, having suffered from AIDS at that point. How did that experience, as you look back on it, shape how you adapted to your life? How did that experience change who you are? Tim's life and Tim's death had a profound experience on me, has a profound experience on me. Being with him in the dying journey uh, taught me all of the things that we learn with someone who begins to appreciate at a peak level what matters most to them. I also learned a lot about simply the um, physical caregiving of someone whose um, body is changing dramatically, uh, who's unable to attend to their own most intimate needs. Uh, and of course, um, this would have a real, real meaning for me um, when my husband John was dying. Today, I look back on Tim's life and the things that he shared with me and modeled for me, and I still draw on them. Um, I thought about it recently uh, his words were, don't let what exists already determine what your future will be or what it will look like in the future. He was a carpenter and I was looking at a remodeling project and there was something I thought needed to, a wall that needed to stay. And he, he, with a simple reference reminded me of possibility. And, uh, I still draw on his words of wisdom from, you know, a quarter of a century ago. You also mentioned your late husband, John. Again, these are experiences that I think are deeply traumatic, but also they forge who we are as people. And I'm wondering how that experience has both informed you and influenced you. Being with John for over a decade of the years that he lived with this diagnosis and this extraordinary compulsion to be fully alive was um, exceptional. He taught me, he modeled for me and thus taught me how to put one foot in front of the other, moving in the direction of what was important to you. And for him, that meant staying alive. And putting one foot in front of the other meant, let's become macrobiotic and eat brown rice and kale and miso soup. Uh, let's um, try raw foods and uh, drink wheatgrass every day. Uh, let's meditate. Let's uh, go on walks. Let's uh, be in nature. Uh, let's uh, connect with our friends and family. So I got to be with him as he was showing the way to live a rich life today and hope that you get one more day. And all of those years of living beside him uh, infused in me both a gratitude for life, 
and a model for how to be in life. We could call it a traumatic loss. It was equally uh, a profound gift uh, that gives me gratitude every day, every day. As I reflect on what you've been sharing with me, people encountering divorce, it's a traumatic experience. For people that you are coaching, for them, it wouldn't surprise me if they are feeling frustrated, stuck, perhaps anxious. And then, of course, the experiences you've been describing about the end-of-life moments for people. We as a society in the West, I think, are incredibly afraid of death, despite its inevitability for us all. All of these things become taboo in some ways. Failing at a marriage or some relationship, failing to live a life that we think should be more productive and successful than it is. I'm curious about why you seem to have turned your face directly at those experiences and addressed them quite directly with your life and your work. I don't know that I would have said this in the beginning, but I believe there are always new beginnings. And I may not know what will come after death, but I choose a belief that there will be a new beginning. Uh, you know, um, we get to choose our beliefs. So I like to choose the ones that um, make me feel good. <laughs> that one works for me. I will also say that by turning towards death, I can be more alive today because how I live is how I will die. I will either uh, die bitter and resentful and unhappy or I will die grateful, joyful, and alive until I'm not. It's a choice. And uh, I'm choosing to look right at death to help me remember how I want to live today. So how then does one go about becoming an end-of-life doula? What is required to become that? So... Um, uh, the training program involves a lot of learning about the dying process, actually physically what happens. Um, it is a training on how to be fully present to people, how to not try to take away the suffering, but to be with it so that um, it can be lightened for the person experiencing it. So there's a lot of study of also how you help people do the practical things, make decisions about what will happen with their body, make decisions about how they will um, decide when end of life will come, uh, knowing the laws around these kinds of things, right? Where Can I take part in the ending of my life? Depends upon where you live. So um, uh, lots of education, uh, working with people who have been with the dying, um, who've been in the hospice movement for many years. So it's a combination, it's a very um, broad spectrum of skills. And then, of course, working with people who are in the dying process, again, getting the actual experience of, of uh, being with people as they're making decisions of when to end chemo, um, when to quit work, when to sell, sell my sailboat, those kinds of things. When do people that are 
terminally ill decide to turn to an end-of-life doula? What is it that brings them to that decision? One of the things that I think is unfortunate in our culture because we are so reluctant to look at death is that we, uh, we are often late to consider the possibility of support such as hospice. Most people want to die at home, but many people end up dying in a hospital because there hasn't been uh, a culture of support for talking about choices that when end of life comes. So a lot of people don't um, even, well, a lot of people don't know that end of life support is available. A lot of people don't understand about hospice. Uh, a lot of people um, have family members who say, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I, you're not going to die or you need to keep fighting. Or if, if you're not fighting, you're not, um, uh, you're giving up. And as though this, it, as though it were a bad thing to accept the inevitable. So um, I would say people tend to, to inquire uh, late, but I do have someone I've been working with for uh, now a year and a half because he's had a lot of decisions to make uh, in his journey and the decisions get more challenging as time goes on. The choices become fewer. Uh, but um, he's had a, a long period of support uh, for the journey. It seems that there are practical and emotional and potentially spiritual considerations for that person. I can clearly see some of the practical considerations. What does that person get out of this experience with you from an emotional and spiritual perspective? Mm. It's a safe place for people to talk to about those things that they may not be able to talk to about their with their closest family members. Someone may not want to burden their spouse who is already grieving and overwhelmed with talking about their pain, talking about their loneliness, talking about their fear. So there's that safety net. There are also spiritual questions like, am I um, doing something that is sinful if I stop doing chemotherapy? You know, I've walked people through those kind of questions. And that might not be the kind of conversation that can be had with, say, your adult child. So uh, it's a relationship that is, uh, is like no other uh, because, uh, because of those um, obstacles to having others who care about us help us with. So despite the fact I've said several times that we're recording this before Christmas and this is a New Year's show, it feels kind of heavy. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. And I don't think it has to feel heavy. But anyway, noting that, it makes me want to ask you the question: Who looks after you? Mm. Well, I am blessed, truly. <laughs> um, I have the uh, luxury of being an extrovert, and of living in a community where I grew up, and um, still uh, having a place in my law firm that I started decades ago and uh, having uh, a, a great love. So everywhere I turn, I have loving support. The challenge for me is being willing to, still being willing to let it in and remember that people are there for me. Uh, I've also gotten so much better at taking care of myself um, so that I've uh, you know, developed some, some, some good routines and habits that, um, you know, that are helpful. But uh, I'm, I'm truly blessed with support in all directions, I have to confess. 
I'm a lucky person. It does feel to me that as I think about the long arc of your experience and, and your life, that everything you have done and everything that you continue to do has been in some way, perhaps not obvious ways, if we think about divorce law, executive coaching, and being an end-of-life doula, but it's always been about serving and supporting people around you. And I feel like I could sum that up by saying these have all been expressions of love. And I don't know how that feels to you as I describe it that way. Uh, I can tell you I can feel it viscerally in my body, uh, in my heart, and going up to my eyeballs, getting ready to get a little teary as you say that. I've done a lot of reflection on why I'm here. Um, and um, believe it or not, I saw it on a little post-it note this morning when I woke up that um, I must have written some time ago. And it said, um, I'm here to love and serve. And then I've added to that with grace and joy, because I think maybe I've done a lot of service, but not always uh, with a lot of grace and joy. And so this season of my life is adding on the, those ways of being as I love and serve. How lucky am I to say that that's why I'm here? It's a pretty good life. I rewatched your TEDx Omaha talk. It's titled The Energy of Eulogy. And you remarked uh, a little tongue in cheek that you'd become the family eulogist. It's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, this, this, this is a practice. It's a tool, a technique that we might use to reflect not strictly on our demise, but more about how we should live. And so again, in that spirit of the end and the beginning and what lies in between those poles, I'm curious about how you are writing your own eulogy. In looking at my own eulogy, I go directly to the people in my life and reflect on what it is I hope they will say I have brought to their life, that my presence in their life made a difference, that uh, whether it was through something very small, like just a small, kind, thoughtful action, or my saying nothing and simply being beside them when they were in need, that uh, it mattered that I was here. It mattered that I was with them. Uh, and that's uh, what I hope can be said truthfully um, when my eulogy is spoken. I love that you talk about ways of being. And I've heard you talk about how achieving goals is one thing, but what really matters is how we are, how we are being as we meet those goals. And I appreciate you sharing that being attentive to how we are is as important, if not more important than the achievement of goals. I say that because I am thinking about people listening who may be wondering, here I am at the new year. I'm not a big New Year resolution fan, but I do want to think about my life and set some thoughts about who I'm going to be in the future. How would you suggest people listening think about that? I would invite them to reflect on the times of their life when 
they have felt the greatest joy or the greatest meaning. They might even look back on this past year and say, what am I most proud of? Or what do I most regret? Those kinds of questions can be informative about what matters to us most. Uh, And then when you see what that is, ask the question, what quality might I bring to my life that would help me to be more of what it is that I'm longing to be? You know, a loving parent, a thoughtful friend, a supportive coworker. And when you can discover what that is uh, and put it in writing, keep it in front of you, Uh, and remind yourself every day that that's how you want to show up in the world. Um, It will guide you. It will remind you because we're humans and we forget. We fall off of our path. But if we give ourselves some support and some reminders, it will be a glad thing. What is next for you? It feels as if you are continually active. So what does the year ahead, the years ahead hold for you? Well, um, I do tend to take a very long view in life. So um, uh, I've got uh, three years until a milestone birthday. And so uh, I'm already, I've already set an intention to be healthier in three years than I am now. Uh, I did that between uh, the ages of 50 and 60 and did find myself healthier at 60 than I was at 50. So I'm now I'm going for a next three year stretch. I know I have more writing in me. So I'm uh, really reflecting deeply on what that will be. And um, like people who have been end of life have taught me the connection with the people I love, my children, uh, my siblings, my friends who I never feel like I have enough time for. I will look forward to the enjoyment of being present with all of them. This question is something of a digression, but I just wanted to ask you, you were born and raised in Little Italy in Omaha. You live in Little Bohemia, which, which is a kindred neighborhood in towards South Omaha. What does community mean to you? And you know, what has community meant to you throughout mm. your life? Community means I belong. Community means I have um, uh, a responsibility to uh, make the world that's right next to me, that I'm in the midst of, better. Uh, and so that might, some of the ways that's uh, looked for me is having a mural uh, of our neighborhood painted on the back of my building. It means uh, uh, yesterday meeting with uh, other business owners in the Little Bohemia neighborhood. Uh, it means uh, knowing who I live with and, uh, you know, in my, in my neighborhood and uh wanting to make everything better for everyone so that they're connected to me and I'm connected to them. It means um, not being lonely right where you are. So I feel uh, very fortunate uh, and very grounded uh, uh, having my roots be right here in Omaha where there's so many people I love. And there was another word that you use that I particularly like, and again, this is apropos of nothing, but you use the word rituals and how you appreciate I mean, the Catholic Church is replete with ritual. And you may have moved on from that particular faith practice, but you appreciate ritual. I, I just wonder what ritual means in your life, whether you know, probably from the prosaic every day to perhaps the profound and life-changing. Mm. 
It can be day-to-day, lighting incense, lighting a candle. I do keep an altar uh, with um, uh, people in my life who have died. It can mean giving a thoughtful toast on special occasions, really spoken from the heart. Uh, And it can mean uh, seasonal things, like um, my women's first weekend of fall that my friend Gretchen hosts every year, or... Uh, my uh, winter retreat when I will go be solo for a while and reflect on some of the things that we've been talking about here today. So I want to close in with um, an invitation for you to share perhaps a piece of wisdom or insight, maybe even a moment of epiphany or vulnerability that you feel is worth sharing at this precise moment for people in our world, in our community, as we pivot from one year to the next. There's so much loneliness in our world and so much separation. This year can be an opportunity for you to make some choices that leave you less lonely, that leave you more connected. And the path to that is really finding what's important to you and living and keeping with that. Because when you do, when you're living and keeping with who you really are and who you are called to be, you won't be alone. You'll be connected uh, and you'll make this a really great year. My guest today has been coach, attorney, author, and end-of-life doula, Susan Koenig. Susan, thanks so much for sharing both your experiences, but also your insight and knowledge. So thank you. What an honor. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Happy holidays to you all. Thanks for listening.